Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody. Thanks for joining me. It's always a pleasure on Monday night to have these meetings and meeting up with all of you because I get to talk about some of my most favorite topics and talk with people who are so knowledgeable it's unbelievable. But before we start, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his intro. Um, please check him out on the internet, Ken Quiethawk. He's a native storyteller. You will be amazed at what, amazed at what you learn and um, probably get some ideas as to how to preserve your own history and cosmology in ways that are not in, in writing that most people aren't going to read. But, but when there's a story that you're telling, my goodness, people take it to heart and pass it generation to generation. So tonight, um, we're going to be talking with Michael Curry and his book, Restarting Gen Genesis. And it's an amazingly lovely book. And, and he has also written Restarting Exodus, Exodus and Genesis. We're talking about Exodus tonight. Many books have been written about the Exodus. Most seem to place the greatest emphasis on understanding the historical aspects of that event. Restarting Exodus will take a different approach. The emphasis will be on understanding the spiritual picture being presented. While most people understand that the Exodus is telling of the great spiritual deliverance of the Hebrews, they underestimate the degree to which the spiritual is incorporated. Here you will find the Exodus to have been restarted using covenant theology. The covenant view will cause many portions of the Exodus to come alive with fresh ideas and understanding from the theological perspective. If you want to read a book based on traditional thinking, this is not the book to read. Only read this book if you're interested in a fresh look at the Exodus. Mike, Mike majored in anthropology and minored in geology in college and participated in three summer dig, digs and has toured both Egypt and Turkey. He never lost interest in those two fields and finds that the Bible and science complement one another far more often than realized. His teaching is largely for those who have been reluctant to factor in scientific information into their belief system. 
And that's an important thing because while the book is a spiritual book, um, you can't look at it specific. You can't look at it just spiritually or just historically. There has to be an incorporation here and an understanding of the purpose of the words. And I think you're going to have a, a lot of fun tonight with Mike, as am I, um, delving into this book. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hello, I'm here. <laughs> Glad to Yay. be with you. Oh, it's, it's, I'm delighted to have you here. And I, I'm so excited about going into this book because I've read both of your books. But oh, tonight we're going into the – oh, well, you have to. Um, once you once you understand where you're coming from and how you're looking at things, it does give you a whole new perspective on the meaning behind what the words are saying, and and not just just you know the literal words, but the philosophical spiritual words that that are being said. So right. it changes your perspective. It really does. And I, you know, I have that. to say. You know, this is this is one of my favorite topics. I mean, I the Exodus is just <clears throat> one of the coolest parts. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorites as well. <laughs> so, you know, in going, what what was it that that sort of put you Not in this right direction? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, there are Bible study classes all over the place. But they're basically going more, you know, and and but they don't go into the material the way you do, and it it brings so much to life. It's really it's a fascinating way of looking at the whole process. You know, I, uh, I my wife and I started going to a different church about I don't know eighteen years ago, and when I I got there. We, we attended a Sunday school class for senior adults. And I don't think we'd been there a month, and the guy that was teaching the class said, I would like to take a month off and not teach. Mike, would you take over and teach his class for a month? I was new. <laughs> I was the newest guy in the room, and he picked me out of the crowd to teach it. Well, I did, and I I taught it using a denominational supplied curriculum, and I taught from that book, but I thought, this is really strange. So I, I had worked my whole working life in the Christian booksellers industry, and I had seen what denominational supplied Sunday school materials were like. Typically, they, they worked their way through the Bible in either a five- or seven-year cycle, and when they were done, they would start over, not the same exact teaching, but through the Bible again. And always it was aimed at people that were not very well informed or people that were new Christians. And I was going to teach people that had been Christians for decades and were pretty strong in the Word. And I thought, is it really fair for me to give them another class at an elementary level when they have been through this quite a few times already? And I I had to struggle with that. And I... I decided it wasn't fair to do that. They needed to be challenged, and I didn't really know how to do it. (laughs) But there I was teaching people that had been Christians for decades. Well, what I did was I I taught it out of the book, but I tried to dig in more deeply and look at things that were not given in the text 
and the class thrived under it. So when I I stepped up to teach a different class, I, I started teaching a class for an adult group in the afternoon. I, I had that mindset that people need to be challenged a little bit. And so I I started out teaching that class, which was an overview of creation, looking at things in a deeper way. And and I like that. And I, I taught that class three times over a three-year period for like, you know, it's like 16 weeks at a t- each year. And each time I added to it, I couldn't use something that was already supplied because I was attempting to teach it a bit more deeply than, than what normally was offered. So I had to write it myself. And as I as I taught and wrote, I kept adding to it over the course of three years. And about halfway through the third year, I said, you know, I could never do this again. This has gotten far too large <laughs> to teach in a reasonable number of weeks. And that became Restarting Genesis. That was my first book. So I, without knowing what I was going to do, I began teaching to accommodate what looked to me to be the needs of the students. And it was a good way to go because it caused me to look more deeply at things. When I got that book done, I was already fired up to start the Exodus, and I started with the same idea. I would look at it more closely than what I had before, and I, I, I'm glad I went the way I did. I've had I've had fun. <laughs> well, you know, I, to, you you a great deal use covenant theology, and mm-hmm. I think it's important that people understand what covenant theology is because there's so many places where where this theology comes in here in many different places, and it's important to understand just what covenant theology is. Mm-hmm. It, so much uh, of the Bible is about relationships. Virtually every relationship in the Bible is taught through the lens of covenant, and almost Almost on every page it comes up. We we overlook it. Uh, it. It's a simple term. I mean, most people think they know what covenant is. Well, it's an agreement, right? And they say, we know that uh, Moses was in covenant with God and the Hebrews were in covenant with their God. Sometimes we know there's a, a church that maybe uses the word covenant in the name of their church. But, you know... I, I can't think of anyone that's actually sat through a class where covenant was actually taught. And and there's more to it than meets the eye. Uh, maybe I should give a little bit of an overview of the things that make up covenant. Would that be all right? Yeah. To Absolutely. do that? Um, because, there's, because there's more to it than meets the eye. As we launch into the teaching... The understanding that covenant is present in all these relationships causes a wake-up uh, to take place, and people people see much more clearly what's happening when they understand the way the relationships were established. I think what I'll do is I'll actually read. I opened while we were talking here. I opened to a section where I had quoted another author. She makes it a point to say that there were eight different 
uh, elements that made up a covenant. In the ancient world, this was not a theological term. It was a secular term. A covenant was a relationship between a great king and a servant king, and uh, both of them had responsibilities under it, and both received benefits. But I'll, I'll read the things that make it up. Number one, the preamble and historical prologue in which the king identifies himself, states his name and titles, and perhaps his accomplishments as well, uh, and in uh, one or both partners may re relate the history of their relationship. Number two, the granting of territory by one partner to the other. In this type of covenant, the territory is granted by the Greek king to the servant king or the vassal king. Number three, conditions which must, must be met by the vassal servant known technically as stipulations. Four, sanctions or blessings and curses which follow either the keeping or breaking of the covenant. The oath in which one or both parties swears loyalty to the terms of the treaty. Six, witnesses to the agreement who would not only listen to the terms but also enforce its sanctions. Seven, a sign or a mark that identifies the treaty's existence. And eight, provision for a permanent record of the agreement included in a public reading of the text at a periodic interval. A covenant didn't go into effect until it was written down, sealed, and delivered to the service servant king. It was a very formal agreement. Uh, most often, nations at the time were talking about here in the ancient world, we didn't have nations the size of what we had today. In the entire world, we've got like 200 companies. We have big ones like the United States and, and major ones like Russia and Britain and so on. In the ancient world, just in the area that we now look on as Israel, there were many nations living in that space. As, as we, I don't know if we'll get to this tonight, but uh, as the conquest began, the Hebrews were instructed to take over places, and they were listing, you know, in some cases as many as ten, ten different nations, all within that small area. They weren't as big. People uh, see the evolution which goes on from from family groups to little communities to uh, city states. And eventually, they grew to reach the stat, uh, state of nation states and, and true nations as we know them today. This was a growth process, and at the time the biblical events took place, nations were much smaller. So a, a great king uh, being kind of like a protectorate, a military protectorate of a small nation, he might be able to watch over just a few hundred people, which they considered themselves to be a state, an entirely different world, so to speak. But both of these had benefits and both had responsibilities. Uh, a servant king was not allowed to have a covenant with any other king. He, he was to war on the side of the great king, if, if that was called for, uh, and yet he had a safe place. The king would grant him a territory, he had a safe place to live, and he didn't have to worry about being overrun because the great King was watching over him. It was, it was a good relationship, but it was a secular relationship. The teaching in the Bible is talking about relationships either between God and man or between people. Uh, 
but this was a good example for them. They understood it well, uh, and when covenant language is used, they knew right away what it meant. We don't grasp it quite that quickly. <laughs> it, it, was it sort of a contract or a treaty type of thing? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Was was it sort of like a, a contract or a treaty? Yes, it was written down, and actually uh, there was two copies of it. The great king got one, two identical copies. The great king got one, the servant king got one, and the servant king would post his copy in a public place so that everybody could see it, and it was read publicly at, at intervals. There was no room for mistaking what had taken place. The people... Everybody had to understand the agreement that was in effect and what their responsibility uh, was to be in it. So, so just just um, you know, off the subject, but kind of on. So, sort of, the Ten Commandments then were a part of covenant between God and the Hebrews, kind of like this is what you do, and if you don't do. I'm not going to protect you, basically. Exactly. Actually, let's see. Uh, the uh, the covenant which went into effect um, w- would uh, begin in the very beginning of the Bible. We we often think that there's a progression of what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. Really, it's all one story. Uh, uh-huh. It comes at the story in different ways and tells it sometimes from the perspective of man and sometimes the perspective of God. But of these eight elements which made up the covenant, in the very beginning of the book, in Genesis 1, five of those eight elements are in Genesis chapter 1 when the Bible describes the creation is using the creation of the cosmos, which they were very interested in, to actually describe a relationship that was coming into existence. That was a covenant relationship, and five of those eight elements are actually present in the very beginning of the book in Genesis 1, and it carries through the book, through the entire Bible. Covenant comes up over and over again. Not always that many of the elements, it's easy to overlook if a story is told and only one or two elements seems to be there. But in this particular case, a lot of them were, and it's showing how important covenant was in the very beginning when God was forming his relationship with Adam. It's really cool. Well, it, it, it's, it, it was fascinating to me is that that always there seems to have been this bargaining going on not bar- well yeah it's bargaining god is saying these are the rules and if you abide by them i will protect you and i will make you plentiful and i will make sure that you don't starve and all of that stuff and it just it it's it, you know in a way you look at how many times there was a covenant between the hebrews and god and the hebrews screwed it up and <laughs> And yet there was, and the, you know, it, you, you got to think that, that at some point in time, God just shut the door and went out and played golf for a while and let them just mess up really good and come back and rescue them. I mean, it just um, it leads to a good question. 
God is when, God in in order to do in order to create um the 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 quote unquote the religion in order to create the spirituality in order to to create this 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 concept that held everybody together um he had to choose i think it, and, and it's a good point can you make it in the book he had to choose a small group rather than a large nation to that's exactly it when yeah. when you read the bible in order for us to understand that it's God that's bringing things to pass. He's almost forced to use a, a small, weak group. If he had picked the strongest nation around, you could easily reason that they were strong enough that they could achieve whatever took place on their own. When God chose Israel, he picked a nation that actually began with only 70 people. <laughs> well, and, and the thing, the thing too that it it just dawned on me that that by picking a, a small weak group, it 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 forced them to develop faith. That's exactly right. Every almost everything they would come up against, they would find that they couldn't do it. They couldn't pull it off on their own. Uh-huh. Because God would make it happen. And most of the time they would recognize that it had been God, but it didn't last long. <laughs> God, <laughs> God never broke his covenant, but they did repeatedly. And we sometimes say things like, why did God let that happen? Well, <laughs> it isn't that God let that happen. It's that God lets us make our own decisions. We have to come under the covenant voluntarily. We have to stay under it willingly and and obey the precepts that he has, has laid out for us. If we do that, things work. When things would blow up in their face, always there was a reason they had done something they weren't supposed to do. It, it <laughs> happened over and over again. And oh, yeah. I have over and over again because I mess up too. <laughs> I think I've got it all together and... And then I let my guard down, and and things will blow up. Well, it, <laughs> it 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 kind of is a is a great example of a tolerant parent beyond mm. tolerant. I mean, um, when when you think of what what was offered, and it was real simple, <clears throat> wasn't asking for you know a lot, but but every time they doubted, I mean, even even when they were. On the Exodus, they started to complain about the fact that the food wasn't that good, and you know, and you know, they 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 mentioned a lot, and and it was kind of like, you know, it, it, you sit back and you think, here here God is somewhere way way else, other dimension probably, just just watching what was going on, sitting there saying, oh damn. What 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 are they thinking? <laughs> they needed continual reminders, and and yeah. the reminders needed to be significant. I mean, they almost everything God put in front of them to them was really major, and and yet they would only stick with God for a fairly short time. I mean, you know, when when they left Egypt, they 
really weren't wor- worshiping God. They were worshiping the gods of Egypt. Mm-hmm. God straightened them out on that. Maybe we can talk about that a, a little bit later here. But they they left Mount Sinai and and went uh, to Canaan, and they got involved with the gods of Baal. I mean, they went from the frying pan into the fire, so to speak, and yet God would continually step up, show them where they had, had gone wrong, and and bring them back into a covenant, which they had a hard time keeping. <laughs> but you know, what what I found hard to understand was that, you know, he, he gave them their parameters and they got tired and they wandered off to, to want to, to worship these other gods, minor gods and goddesses and everything. But the minor gods and goddesses never did anything for them. The only, the only, the only thing that ever, you know, had manifestation of any sort was the covenant they had with God. I mean, creepers look look at look at the um the plagues that he was able to manifest i mean not, and and while well, yes the magicians could could manifest some of it but but you know there were several that, that they just couldn't they couldn't i mean the, the water and uh, the, the those, water and yeah, when so, those plagues so, began uh i don't know if you ever thought about this but uh Moses would say, Aaron, lift your rod, and whatever plague was coming up would begin at the hand of Aaron. When they actually crossed the Red Sea and the waters parted, it was the rod of Moses that was lifted up. In in almost everything God does, there's a, a spiritual side and a physical side, a natural side or a historical side and a spiritual side. Moses represented leadership at the physical level, and Aaron eventually became the first priest. He he was the leader at the spiritual level. Uh-huh. When they were bringing about those plagues, Moses said, Aaron, lift your rod, and whatever was going to take place would happen. But it wasn't Moses' rod. God was reaching out to the Egyptians in a spiritual way because uh, it was Aaron's rod that brought them on. In other words, it was a spiritual leg of the story that was being told. God was going to deliver the Hebrews, but he was actually providing an opportunity for the uh, Egyptians as well, and they passed on it. <laughs> they they didn't yeah. think it was such a good idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and when the Hebrews left, they thought it was a great idea until they began to say, hey, this is different, this is hard, this is work, we can't handle this. We want to go back to Egypt and, and sit by the meat pots where we ate to the full. They they enjoyed their life in Egypt. And when they saw that they were coming into something new and that things were going to be required of them, they weren't so sure it was a good idea. <laughs> they wanted to go back to the old way. God wanted to move them on, and he did. In his own way, yes, definitely. In his own way. I think one of the one of the interesting things that that, that I didn't realize, um, they said that that they wandered in the desert for forty years, but mm-hmm. they actually didn't. They they spent thirty eight years. Um, I can't remember the name of the place, but they spent thirty eight years 
in in one in one place. Kadesh Barnea. Yeah. They, they spent 38 years at Kadesh Barnea, and and we're not so sure that that place has been identified. So many, a lot of people have such a hard time with the Exodus because they're looking for physical evidence of things that happened. And the Bible very specifically says they they spent 40 years, but 38 of those 40 were spent at Kadesh Barnea. They weren't really wandering then. That was just south of uh, the land of Canaan. That was where they were poised uh, to go in and, and take the land. I'll use the biblical words. Uh, but it was put on hold because the report that the spies brought back was negative. They they saw there was giants in the land. They 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 only saw giants. They didn't see the opportunity, and that generation died, uh, and and never did have the opportunity to enter the land. But that's one of the things that causes people to doubt this whole thing today because. There's no archaeological evidence anywhere around Kadesh Barnea that the Jews were ever there. People have a hard time with that. The, where the Hebrews crossed the Red Sea, people have identified at least 15 different places where they think the crossing might have happened. But it's still a matter of conjecture. There's not universal agreement on where the crossing was. Mount Sinai is said to be in the South Sinai Peninsula near a place called St. Catherine's Monastery. There's no archaeological evidence there that the Hebrews were ever there. The plagues seem to be written in such strange language that people have a hard time believing that they actually happened. And the time period that people put on this whole story should be a time of brokenness. But there's two common dates that people try to point to and say it's when the Exodus happened. Both of them occurred during the New Kingdom, which was a time of tremendous growth and prosperity. So the average person looking at all this stuff says, this makes no sense. The evidence, ought to, if, if as many people as they think were involved in the Exodus actually were there, and they were there for 38 years or whatever, there ought to be some evidence. And, and the evidence that we find is is very sparse. And well, I think the other thing, the other thing that that is that when you look at all of this, they had spent so long in Egypt that they were more Egyptian than anything else. So they absolutely you were. Be, you know, you wouldn't be looking for Hebraic stuff. You you'd be looking for Egyptian stuff, and if it was Egyptian stuff. You don't know if it was just traveling people back and forth or if it was the Exodus itself. That's right. When when we uh, read the, the stories the way it happened, and when we make movies out of them, we show Charles Heston in a Heston in a Hebrew <laughs> rope. When Moses got to Midian and he he met what was going to be his family, he helped two girls bring in their sheep to water. And when they went back to their father and it had been done, he said, how did you get this done so quickly today? And they said, an Egyptian helped us. They thought uh-huh. Moses was an Egyptian. There was no doubt about it. He, he looked Egyptian. When when Jacob died, he had asked not to be 
buried uh, in Egypt. He wanted to go back into Canaan in his his old home. Actually, he wanted to be buried in the cave of Machpelah where he had buried Leah. So they did it. They they took him back to be buried there. There may have been professional mourners involved because there was a big ruckus put up. That, that's a possibility. But the people that saw them coming through, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Even other Canaanites mistook the Hebrews for Egyptians. I mean, by the time they were ready to leave, they looked thoroughly Egyptian. Their, their habits were Egyptian. Their culture was Egyptian. And God had to bring them out of all of that, out of generations of becoming Egyptianized and and reestablish their nation as as Hebrew. And it's one of the coolest part of the stories. I actually, I, I, I'm going to use the word stumbled on to something. <laughs> After I finished the Exodus book, I I looked at what was happening. The, the Hebrews arrived at Mount Sinai, which, by the way, I think is east of the Gulf of Aqaba. Maybe we can talk about that after a while. Um, and Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments. And while they were gone, they reverted to the worship of Egyptian gods. They hadn't any more than got to Mount Sinai than they began to worship Egyptian gods. And even Aaron went and made the golden calf for them. And it was special. When he agreed to do that, they had acquired wealth from the Egyptians. They were allowed to pick stuff from the Egyptian people and and add to their wealth. But when they went to Mount Sinai and they were going to make the golden calf, Aaron said, "I bring me the gold from your earrings. This was very personal. It was gold that they already possessed. It was their, the most valuable possessions, the closest thing to them. They put a lot into the worship of this Egyptian god. That was almost the first thing that happened to them when they got to Mount Sinai. Almost the second thing that happened when they got to Mount Sinai was God instructed them to build the Ark of the Covenant. And the Bible never says why that was done, why he he told them to do that. But they did it. And nobody ever asked why was the Ark of the Covenant made to look the way it was. It wasn't like anything they had ever done up to that point. But the Egyptians had something like that. The Egyptians had a thing they called a bark, B-A-R-K. Sometimes you see it spelled B-A-R-Q-U-E. It was a box, the same the same as the Ark of the Covenant was a box, but it had a very specific purpose. When a pharaoh, the god of Egypt, would die, they would put him in the bark and use it to transport him to his tomb, to his his final resting place. When the uh, Hebrews built the ark, God wasn't in the box. He was on top of it. It might seem Uh a little strange to build a storage container and not have the thing for which it was built be inside. They built it for God, but he was on top of the box instead of inside of it. But you see, the God of Egypt was dead. He was taken inside the box to his tomb. The God of the Hebrews was alive. (laughs) 
he didn't have to mm-hmm. be in the box. <laughs> and and over about a six month period, I realized forty three different comparisons in which God made between Himself and Pharaoh, the God of, of Egypt, which showed the Hebrews how superior he was as a god and how inadequate the Pharaoh was as a god. Once they built the Ark of the Covenant, they never again reverted to the worship of the god uh, of Egypt, of the gods of Egypt. They worshiped the living God. Now, when they got to Canaan, they started having trouble because they got involved in worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, Baal. But God had delivered them very thoroughly by having them build the Ark of the Covenant. He revealed to them how he was different in doing it. And the Ark of the Covenant became the mainstay, the central focus of their entire religion up to the time of Manasseh, I think, when the Ark seems to have disappeared. I could I could spend our whole time here today talking about that one incident, but I we've got a lot of ground to cover and I Oh I yeah. <laughs> but oh, yeah. It's really I, neat to I see think the, how active God was at a critical time. <laughs> I, I think one of the other things that, that that you kind of plotted out exhaustively was was um how many people were actually in the Exodus. Mm-hmm. That's and, another and, thing. And that people, yeah, that's I mean, another reason about the Exodus. They they hear the numbers. The, you know, the Bible says there was 600,000 men, and that would be males. That would be men. They w- wouldn't count women and children in that number. And people have made estimates that the number of people that actually participated in the evidence, I've heard figures anywhere from a million and a half to three and a half million people. Those are greatly inflated numbers. Uh, if you stop and think about it, um, if two million, say, people went on something like that, they were marching in a single line. And I figured out one time, if they left Goshen, and and went to the traditional site for Mount Sinai, and they left in a line eight people wide and a new group leaving every eight seconds, it would have taken 127 days for the rearmost to start walking. The leaders would have been there months before the rearmost had even begun to walk. And yet this is being done in a desert where the resources are slim. Uh, There's many different things that we could bring to bear to show that the number of people that took took part in the Exodus was far smaller than what we, we usually think. We have to come up with a number that really uh, is, is realistic. Uh, they were well, yeah, given you know, one you... night to prepare, and and they were ready to go, and they all left in one day. You know, I mean, uh, well, again, we that could... and the fact that they, that you, they talked about taking herds of cattle and horses and sheep and goats. Exactly, and those them. don't. Over. 
they they were good herdsmen when they when they would move they didn't move at the rate they wanted to walk themselves they they would move at a rate where the herd could walk along and they could graze along the way they 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 wouldn't ruin their livestock in the course of taking them on a trip like that the the livestock had to arrive uh, in good condition and so the the rate that they progressed was a rate that the livestock could manage and that was slower than what men might normally walk. And they had a lot of well, livestock of several different well, kinds. That, that and water. I mean, and and then, of course, the people had to eat, too. I mean, they had the manna. But they did. Were the, herd, were the herds eating the manna as well? The, the, the amount of... Of anything in a desert is interesting. If they if they ate manna for forty years, which I think they did, the amount of it was unbelievable. I figured out one time they were also given quail when they, they couldn't handle manna, and I figured uh-huh. out one time that if everybody ate a quail every day, that it would have, and they did it for forty years, it would have taken two billion quail to feed a group that big. Well, a desert can't supply two billion of anything. I mean, there's all the water, the water that's said to have flowed from the rock. If there was two million people in there, even if the rock could produce a flow big enough to feed two million people, they couldn't get close enough to it. They would block each other from from getting close enough to take a drink. You know, we don't think about these outsized proportions, but. But if you're going to take a drink, you have to be able to get to where the water is. And if there's 2 million people, only the front few are going to get a drink. And everybody else, you'll get your drink, and then you're going to be blocking the guy behind you. It, it, well, you know, that, it would be very difficult. Uh, and the, we don't... The, we part, don't... The, the, part, the part in your book that, that actually, you know, all of, all of these reasons, excellent reasons, but the one thing that... that really got to me, and I don't know where you found this number, but it's going to be someplace. You said that in that whole exodus, there were only two midwives. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't recall what scripture that is right now, but that's that's straight out of the Bible. And if, if they only had two midwives, there couldn't have been anything like two million people. I mean, if if they uh, if they had numbers that big, they would have had like twenty thousand births to contend with regular. They, they they would have had to work twenty four seven. They wouldn't have had time to wash themselves, to go to the toilet, to eat. They would have been delivering babies all day long, and two million people would be scattered over an area. You know, two million even today is a pretty good sized city. And they would have been more compact at that time, but they would have been scattered over a wide enough area that two million. Uh, uh, people would have more babies than could be taken care of by two midwives. It, it, Do you think, and we don't we don't think about stuff like that. You know, we we, we take these numbers and look at them, and unless we unless we digest them and see what the ramifications are, um, we 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 may miss what's being said. When the Bible well, what would does, a, what would a pardon? what would a conservative guesstimate be as to just the size of the exodus itself. Well, I've heard different figures on it. Uh, anywhere from 6,000 to 34,000 
are are common ones where people deal with this. Even 6,000 might be a stretch if it really was a, a dry desert. You, if you had 6,000 people marching in a line going anywhere, that would tax a desert. And yet we have no big rut in the sand where the exodus took place. There's no evidence for it. If, if, that, if, if a huge number of people had walked along there just traipsing through the sand would have marked it off that that we'd be able to, to trace it. And we don't know exactly the route that they took today. I think we have a pretty good idea, but we don't know the exact route that that they took today. Um, the area was wetter at that time. At the time of the year, we, we look at it today and we see what it's like. I've, I've been to Egypt. It's very dry. You go from place to place. And you say that's the way Egypt was. Well, that whole part of the world, in fact, the whole world itself was more moist at that time. This is not really a part of our discussion today, but there was a cataclysm, which in the Bible we call a flood, which I believe took place about 9,700 B.C. And the world began to change at that time. One of the things that it did is it began to dry out. At that time... The Sahara Desert was not a desert at all. It was a lush green place, and there was giraffes and different animals living in it. Today, that's not possible. But underneath the ground, underneath the sand, there's a great reservoir of water that's that's there that's a remnant of what existed 10,000 years ago. Uh, when we look at anything in the old world today, anywhere around Jerusalem or the Near East or, or Egypt, things were more green at the time these events took place than what they are today. So when we say that the Hebrews crossed the desert, it's a spiritual story. There had to be enough water so that however many people, whether it was 6,000, even if it was only 100 people, they would have had to have water. They, they couldn't walk all the way across the desert without getting something to drink occasionally. It was there... Uh, but since the sites are now dry, we don't we don't see them. And what archaeological sites may be there are probably clustered around what had been oases at the time of the Exodus. They they didn't walk 24/7. They could have done that for a day or two, but to do it for many days and for the animals to walk like that. Everybody need, needed rest and everybody needed water. So not only was there more water available, but there was fewer people searching for it. Uh, I don't have a strong opinion about how many people there actually were in the Exodus, but when we get into the conquest, we see the Bible giving us figures of on the order of 40,000 people for each tribe. Now that's another thorny issue. <laughs> The, the number ah. 40 is is a symbolic number, and it, it's actually the number for testing. So when the Bible gives us the, the number of peoples in the various tribes of issue uh, that existed, they may not have been literal numbers either. But we did have 12 tribes. They did settle all across the, the land of Canaan, so there had to be enough of them to, to settle the land. They, they, you couldn't move in with 10 people and take over something, uh, there had to be enough to have an effect. 
That's not a real complete answer, I don't think, but I don't know precisely how many people there are, but it's less than two million, and it, it, had, it had to be significant enough to take over Canaan. Well, I think also what what impressed me was the fact that, and I and I keep I keep thinking that maybe while they were on this this uh, march that that God did something like stop pregnancies from happening and stuff so that you know you didn't you know double your population or anything so i mean if he could if he could send manna down from heaven and if he could bring water out of rocks then he certainly could have you know just said let's not let's not repopulate the desert here let's just wait till you get some place <laughs> where we're settled but also that there was a um it sounded like there was some sort of fighting force or some sort of army that they actually had and and i i think that that um that you mentioned the fact that that the hebrews um that that left you know there there were some that actually were um military and, when they and, when they got to canaan there were some battles that were actually fought with swords and spears and some were not. The the when we read about the conquest, I may be getting ahead of myself a little here talking about the conquest, but when the conquest began, I think we get the idea that it took place just within a generation of Joshua because he he led it. But uh-huh. there's several different scriptures that God says that He would cause them to take the land little by little. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't all done in one generation. It it was done maybe o- over a couple of hundred years, and there were some physical battles where they actually fought with swords, swords and spears, but the conquest was of a different nature. The Lord's plan for the conquest was of a different nature than what we tend to think of it. We we view Joshua as going in and, and reaping havoc with the people that were there, and it wasn't entirely that way. Um, when when the Hebrews got there, they were kind of like Highlanders. They they stayed up on the mountain tops. Uh, I guess I can give you an example when we go back before the ever, Hebrews ever got to Egypt, and Abraham and Lot were together, and they separated. Abraham gave Lot first pick where he wanted to go. He took the well-watered plain of the Jordan River, and that uh, left Abraham with the mountaintops. That's kind of where they were when they went back to uh, Canaan land. They 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 were they were Highlanders. They they stayed up high, and that meant that their water sources were not as good and their crop production was not as good. There'd be grass there. But they, they frequently had trouble with uh, uh, droughts, and they were, they were struggling with That was why they initially had gone to Egypt, because it was too dry for them. So we have to be dealing with small enough numbers that they could exist in the drier highlands, and yet they had to be lar- a large enough number 
that they could have an effect on on the various people, Canaanites. They they took over many nations, and there had to be a significant number to do that. Did that make sense? Well, you, yeah, but you you also talked about how the conquest and and the conquest was a battle of spirit in many cases rather than a physical battle with swords and spears. That's that's exactly right. When uh, the Bible tells them to go in and and take over the land, we read it as if it it, it reads they're supposed to go and kill them all, but yeah. it, it's they're supposed to uh, tear down their Asherah poles and things like that. They listed I think it was four things that they were to do, and they were all things that were directed at the gods of the Canaanites. They were they were to overturn their gods, their religious system, and bring them into covenant with the living God. Uh, it was uh, God's original intention was not to have a military conflict, but to go in there and win the people over. God's plan from the very beginning is to win the lost. And, and he's always working to that extent. When we go out to win the lost, we maybe don't do it in the way that God would intend, but uh, God is a very gentle, loving God, and he reveals himself in special ways and brings people in. He he doesn't do it by killing them. <laughs> and, well, I think uh, that, that, that's also one of the other things that you brought out, which which fascinated me and and made great sense. Um, there's, in many cases, there's great exaggeration, and it's it's meant to prove a point, but exactly. not necessarily to be taken literally. And um, exactly. exactly, that happens all through the Bible. Uh, well, I, the be- the best place though are in in the um, the plagues, because mm-hmm. um, I, I mean when when. And in many other places in the Bible, where where um, they, uh, they 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 say to kill everybody, but to do away with or to you know to do away with a, a whole city or whatever, it it really didn't mean that they were supposed to kill everybody and wipe everybody off the face of the earth. Though there are a couple of places where he did say kill everybody, but it, but basically it, it, it has happened. But what what actually. The the people, the gospel writers, recognize that the spiritual story, the spiritual leg of the story, which God wants to tell, is really the main part of it. It's, it's the most significant part. And anything of a spiritual nature is, is far more important than what takes place in the world. They would say that salvation is the most important thing that can ever happen. And yet what they do, because they take things that are exist in the physical world, the historical nature of things, use them as examples for us to teach about uh, spiritual things. The, the physical always re- reflects the, the spiritual. That in order to make a good match, they have a hard time because they view the importance of salvation as very high and nothing can equal it. 
nothing that takes place in the physical world can equal it. Uh, if you lose your life, is that as important as losing your spiritual life? They would say, no way. Uh, so what they do in order to describe things using something from the physical world, they they exaggerate it. They make it sound as if it could be so bad that it could equal the loss that would take place at the spiritual level uh, if we missed God. It's it's the ancients understood that they they understood when when hyperbole was used that it was to show how serious of a situation a loss was taken at the spiritual level, uh, and they weren't misled by it. But we are. We're uh, today we're not accustomed to that practice. When we read something, we think it means what it says. We read a newspaper or book, and we we take it as pretty much what it says and and yet they were using figurative language they were using something physical to teach about the spiritual and we we kind of overlook that and it's uh, it's oh, something we have to learn to to read because it, it it's not just the exodus it's, it's all through the bible uh, every everything is that way uh, the spiritual point is always always the main point God is interested in both the physical and the spiritual, and we have two parts to our lives, physical and spiritual. For men, we tend to look at the physical aspects of our lives first, and then when we get that under control, we think, okay, now maybe i got time to look at the spiritual <laughs> side. God doesn't do it that way. He starts with the spiritual side, and when we get that under control, okay, we'll, we'll deal with the with the physical. When God moved the Hebrews from Canaan to uh, to Egypt, they wanted to go there for food, right? That was their uh-huh. primary motivation. God had them in the highlands, in the mountains, because they could better understand what God was doing without quite so many distractions. Distractions were important, but he had put them in a somewhat of a safe place. They they had the promised land. They they were living in it. They They didn't have to conquer it 400 years later they 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 had to do that because they had left it voluntarily to seek something of, of a physical nature to to search for food <laughs> we always do that <laughs> well yeah but once they got the food and times were better they stayed where they were they didn't go back home that's exactly right when you think about abraham abraham went to Egypt, but he came back. It almost cost him his wife. Isaac did uh-huh. that. It almost cost him his wife. Why did that happen in two separate generations? Jacob went to uh, Egypt, but he never lost sight of uh, what was really to be his. He wanted to go back to, to Canaan and be buried there. Uh, Joseph, while he did everything to do to help his, his family, he never got really embroiled in the Egyptian system, but his brothers did. They went there looking for food. They got the food, and after they had had all the food they needed, they stayed there, and they did that. Well, they were, given, they, they were given. Oh, and, they were giving Goshen. And and early on, once the once the seven uh, bad years were over, they could have left at any time. But they stayed there a long time after that. They were 
they were content. They liked it, and that was it. Was at that point that they were leaving the living God and beginning to worship the gods of Egypt. They had been won over <laughs> by what Egypt had to offer. Egypt had quite a lot to offer. It was a very wealthy oh, yeah. place. It was uh, magnificent. I mean, I can't imagine the things that I saw when I was there uh, were kind of in ruins. But you could you could get an idea of how magnificent things were uh, when they were new, and and you would shake your head and say. How did they do this? I, I've heard hundreds of people, including myself, say, how did they do that? They achieved incredible things, good things, really, I mean. Uh, but they did not have the living God in their camp when they did it. And and that that's the whole story. So the Hebrews, uh, <laughs> they had to learn to trust the living God regardless where they were. They went to Egypt found themselves embroiled uh, in the gods of Egypt, and when they got to Canaan, they found themselves getting embroiled with the uh, gods of Baal. So it's not the physical circumstances that make or break us. It's it's what we choose to do (laughs) and how we choose to live. Yeah. Well, I think the the thing about the Exodus and First of all, that they actually were 40 years in one place. You know, that blew me away. I just, I had this picture of them going in circles in the desert, and it didn't make any sense because even at at a slow pace, 40 years, you're going to get to the other side of the desert. So That's um, exactly right. uh, When we try to reconstruct this and figure out what they actually did do, there's really five key locations. One uh, is where they they began. They they began in uh, in in Egypt, in the northeast corner of a very fertile uh, place there, where they they had lived for however long they were in Egypt. Second thing was the crossing of the Red Sea. The third thing uh-huh. was the arrival at Mount Sinai. The fourth thing was the arrival at Kadesh Barnea, and the last thing was uh, arrival in in Canaan. The number of months that they actually spent marching wasn't really as great as what we we tend to think. I mean, for them to get from Goshen to the Red Sea, we're we're talking maybe maybe weeks, not not months, I don't think. And when they crossed the Red Sea, Mount Sinai was right there. And then to get to uh, Kadesh Barnea. It seems to me I, the Bible does say somewhere that it's an 11-day march. I'm not I'm not certain about that, but it's not a great march. And then they were at Kadesh Barnea for 38 years. So it's really only two years that the whole beginning portions of the Exodus uh, uh, took place. They, uh, I had grown up thinking they were wandering in circles for 40 years, and they, they really didn't, didn't do that. <laughs> it would have been too hard on their lives. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would think so. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you've mentioned you've mentioned crossing the Red Sea and I've I've heard a lot of different theories as to exactly where they crossed and you know it's it's it 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 just is um the crossing could have been in some places that was, you know, just muddy and 
and and it was a reed sea. It wasn't, you know, the Red Sea. But but you know, when you get to the description, especially in the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, I mean, come on, they were walking on dry land. Yep. Um, and and any time you you part water and you pull it aside, it it's been wet for a, a long time. It's going to be muddy, and yet it wasn't. It was dry. And yep. So how how did he do that? The way things are described in the ancient world, uh, be, because the emphasis is on the spiritual leg of this more so than on the physical leg, it'll develop the the spiritual leg a little better than it sometimes does with the physical leg. If they cross the Red Sea, the spiritual leg is only talking about the crossing itself. The physical leg, we have all kinds of questions about how it took place, when it took place, where it took place. And and these become important because in order to leave Egypt, they had to cross what you called... Uh, the Reed Sea. There, there is a line of lakes and swamps which extends. If you can picture this, since we don't have a, the, the the Red Sea has two forks at the north end. The western fork is is called uh, uh, the Gulf of Suez, and the eastern fork is called the Gulf of Aqaba. At the north end of uh, the Gulf of Suez a line of lakes begins, a line of lakes and swamps begins, which extends all the way from the tip of the Gulf of Suez all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and people have examined that ad nauseum almost, trying to figure out where they cross. There's a whole bunch of places that have been suggested as possible crossing sites. And in, in actuality... Any one of them might have worked. I mean, the the water had to be shallow enough that they could get through it, and yet we're told that they crossed on dry ground, and they did it in one night, uh, and apparently without difficulty. With water level higher back at that time, the Gulf of Suez extended a little farther north than what it now does, and it would have ended at a place that today we call Lake Timpson. And that's an interesting spot because where Lake Timpson now is, there's the beginning point of of two uh, lines of water that are man-made. There are two canals that begin there. One goes west to the Nile River, and one goes north to the Mediterranean Sea. There's still vestiges of, of those that can be found in the area. They're all dried out now, but uh, they were there. A spot that hasn't been uh, held by too many people, I think, is really important, and that is at Lake Timsa, where those two uh, canals come together. They, they, if they crossed at that point, the Bible says they crossed the Red Sea. If they had crossed physically at that point, they would have actually been crossing the actual Red Sea. 
And it's interesting because we are told they they crossed on on dry ground. Uh-huh. And we're also told that there was a wall of water on their left and on their right. <laughs> and and people have tried to explain those walls of water in any kind of ways, always with physical explanations. Um, and we have all seen the movie The Ten Commandments, and we've seen those walls of water sticking up hundreds of feet and standing up by themselves and collapsing yeah. on the, the uh, Egyptians just after the Hebrews got through. Well, that kind of makes sense to us because of the way we we hear things being said. But what we don't really understand is the water levels that took place that existed at the time of the Exodus. Um, the the Nile River fed the uh, Tumalot Canal. I, I, I may have them backwards. I think it was the Tumalot Canal was the uh, one that went east and west. It actually, uh, was, you, could, you could transport things by boat from the northern tip of the uh, Gulf of Suez over to the Nile River. That was a waterway to get between the two places. That that would have been important. Um, so there there would have been something of a barrier created by that canal. At the same time, another canal went north from the tip of the Gulf of Suez to the Mediterranean Sea, again connecting two bodies of water. They actually had passage by boat uh, to get between the Mediterranean Sea, the the Red Sea, and the Nile River. And that that would have been important. Uh, If they didn't have that in a natural way, they would have been looking for a way to achieve it themselves, and the two canals would be that way. Well, what's interesting about this is the way... Uh, water went there were there were tidal fluctuations and there was both a, a daily a 12 hour cycle for tides and an annual one the Nile River was at its low point uh, in the month of Nisan and the month of Nisan became so important to them the Hebrews because of the exodus they that they actually were instructed to reorganize their calendar to make the months of month of Nisan the beginning of years for them, because it was the beginning of their freedom from Egypt. At that time, the Nile River was at its low point. At the same time, you had the monthly and daily tidal fluctuations, which would exist in the Mediterranean, and maybe in something as significant as the Red Sea and Nile River. But these canals they were just at the mercy. If the water went up, they were, they were deeper, and if they were shallow, uh, the water went recessed, they, they would have been more shallow. The exodus is said to occur uh, at a really important time. It, it was at, at the time when the moon caused the Nile River to be at its low point for the entire year, and the monthly and daily cycles caused the water level to be low as well they could have crossed at that spot, what is today Lake Timsep, on dry ground because of the water fluctuations that took there, took place there. Um, 
we we don't know anything about that. We we don't we 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 just not aware that those canals are are even there, but they were, and it was important. And the interesting thing about it is, if the exodus took place at that low point, you know, it wasn't Moses that decided when the exodus was going to take place. It was Pharaoh. When, yeah. when Pharaoh finally had enough, he let them go, and they found it passable because of the low water levels that existed at that time. <laughs> Pharaoh was being used by God, even though he didn't understand it in the least. <laughs> uh, I yeah. think it's really that that God uses who he will, whether you were aware of it or not. Now, did they have the, uh, to cross the Jordan too? Uh, not at this. Not at yes, they did, but not at this time. That was uh, forty years later when they began the conquest. Then they then they crossed the Jordan. But there's something interesting about this uh, this crossing because the the wall of water that we always hear about. Um, still befuddles us. I mean, when we think of a wall of water, we think of a vertical wall, water standing up on its edge. And and I've seen people look to all kinds of uh, answers, various wind, you know, tornadoes and hurricanes and different things that might have pushed water uh, into a heap. And maybe you could build a case that it could have been done, but the the problem with it is, is that if the water was pushed aside by any kind of wind, whatever it was, it would also prevent people from crossing. If there was a 200-mile-an-hour wind blowing, they would have had to hole up. They wouldn't have been able to get up oh, yeah. and walk the opening, so they they would have been at the mercy of it as well. So you, 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 you have to get by the idea that it, it was really... A wind. Uh, it, it was something else. And the, these two canals, you know, they were full of crocodiles and, and everything else. But with the water level being lower, was only one part of the story. The wall of water has to be explained, and that's never been done. In the book of Nahum, I don't have that where I can reach it right now, it, it talks about uh, the water being used uh, as as a wall. They, they refer, in Nahum chapter 6, I think it is, refers to uh, uh, water as being a wall, and they were full of parapets. They're military uh, towers where they could have uh, people uh, guarding them. Um, if the things had gone south for the Hebrews and many other people in there at the time, and they were they were now under the tight control of Pharaoh. People would have stopped migrating in. They would they would have known about it. That things had gotten tough in Egypt, and instead of going there, they would have stayed. So it, the situation would have been keeping people out at that point. But for the Hebrews and, and probably other people who wanted to leave at the time they would have been able to leave with these walls 
of water, just simply being water and not a mountain of it. If you read Nahum chapter 6 in several versions, you'll see that that was what was being said, and, and it's not something that we're accustomed to. We've never heard of it. Uh, now, nobody but in our day thinks of water as being a you barrier. Mentioned, you mentioned one area where um, they they have found underwater chariots and chariot right. wheels. Yes. And I, I was fascinated with that, and you know that the government won't let anybody do anything. However, I mean the <laughs> chariots, the, the the chariots do date back to that time frame when it could have been Exodus ish. It's uh, it's it's a really neat part of the story, and I think those chariot wheels have been known for I don't know thirty or forty years. Nobody has been able to do a whole lot with them. There's more there than just chariot wheels. Uh, and, and they may actually point to the date of the Exodus a little bit. What we overlook, when we talk about crossing the Red Sea at Lake Timsa, uh, they had to do that. that. That line of lakes and swamps, in order to leave Goshen and go either to Canaan or Midian, either one, that line of lakes had to be crossed somewhere. And I think that what the Bible is describing is a physical exodus going across what I think is is Lake Timson. But it didn't end there. When Moses left by himself, he arrived in Midian without having to cross the Red Sea. There is a road, and I think that he would have followed. He would have wanted to get out of Egypt as fast as possible. He wouldn't have wanted to take a circuitous route that would have led him through the south end of the Sinai Peninsula and back north again. He would have gone straight across to get away from it. There is a road there that skirts the north end of the Gulf of Aqaba, and then once on the east side of Aqaba, he could drop south to the land of Midian. I think that God... Uh, had plans for them that Moses didn't know about. <laughs> Moses yeah. would have wanted to take them out by the same route he'd used himself. He would have started across that road. He would have crossed, I think, at Lake Timsa, and then headed towards the Gulf of Aqaba, planning to skirt the north end of it. But the scripture says God told them to turn back. And I, made, I can't tell you all this from memory, but they turned south, and confronted Aqaba at a place which today we know as Nueva Beach. It's a big staging area, a big staging area. And at that point, they would have been stuck. And I think God's purpose was to put them in a situation that they, they couldn't have a way out of. They were absolutely stuck, and unless God delivered them, they were in big-time trouble. I think, I, I've mentioned that there's always a physical leg and a spiritual leg to everything that takes place in the Bible. I think uh-huh. the crossing of the Red Sea is actually a dual crossing. I think when they crossed at Lake Timsa, that actually represented the physical exodus that was taking place. And crossing the Red Sea across the Gulf of Aqaba 
represents the spiritual crossing, a two-part uh, crossing. When they left Egypt across Lake, si- uh, uh, Lake Timsa, they then entered into the desert, right? That was sometimes yeah. it's called a wilderness. Spiritually, we do that. When we reach a point in our lives that we say, hey, I, I just can't do this. I, I've, uh, there's got to be a better way. I, I'm not going to live the way I was. That's a physical exodus. But we haven't had a spiritual exodus until we have our confrontation with the Lord and say, okay, I'm going to do this your way. In between, there's some struggle. We sometimes, different people have to struggle with this at length or or at a short time, but there's a period of struggle in between the time we make the decision, I can't do this this way anymore, and between when we arrive at the point where we say, I'm going to do this the Lord's way. That's a desert in between. Uh The crossing of the Red Sea was a two-part crossing, I think, with a desert in the middle. They had the physical exodus, then their wilderness experience, then the crossing that led to Mount Sinai. Incidentally, that's evidence that the South Sinai Peninsula, where St. Catherine's Monastery is, the traditional site, wouldn't work because when they got to, if that had been Mount Sinai, when they were ready to leave it, they would have still had to cross the desert. The, you wouldn't expect that. When when you reach your confrontation with the Lord, you're no longer in a desert. You've arrived at Mount Sinai, if you can see what I'm saying. So yeah. the idea of a two-part exodus, a physical exodus and a spiritual exodus, makes sense from that standpoint. I don't know if they understood it, because when they had their spiritual exodus crossing at the Gulf of Aqaba, they were still in Egypt physically because that's when they built the golden calf. They built the golden calf after they had their their second crossing, but it didn't last long because it was at that point that the God brought the teaching that I alluded to a little while ago talking about the uh, comparison between the living God and the God of Egypt. It's, it's a really cool story, and and that's not in my Exodus book. I didn't, I didn't see that until after the book was already published. So that's that's a little bit new. I don't know whether I'm going to have to have a second edition. If not, I'll have it in an up and coming book that I'm I'm going to be working on here lately. That I've been working on lately. Well, it it, it really, I think what I what I like so much about your book is that you you go through the the biblical and and the literal and then you reflect upon how it relates to our lives today in this particular you know it it is a timeless the bible is a timeless um representation of a spiritual awakening and mm-hmm. and you know exactly. you can equate it everybody can equate it differently as far as you know times in in your life when when I was in the desert or I was, you know, nothing was going right and I, I had nothing. And and then, you know, you, you come to a time where, where you you commit yourself to, yep. exactly. you know, to, you know, you kind of say, hey, can we can we have a contract here because I need some help, you know. And, um, and when everything is going. There can be intelligence out there that can make that work for people yesterday and today 
in different cultures and different languages. It's 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 amazing that it works for everybody. <laughs> well, I I think you know? what what to me is is um, usual. It, it must be because humans are that way. I don't know, but um, it, it's sort of like you don't look for help. You don't stretch yourself into the faith area if things are going great. That's exactly it's usually, right. It's, it's usually when everything is down and out and you have nowhere else to go, and it's kind of like, well, there's got to be something else out here. You know, there's got to be a reason this happened. So let's try to figure out, you know, let's let's stretch out and open ourselves up to the inspiration from the spirit that we carry within. Yep, and, and God speaks to us through these things over and over again, and we don't always recognize up front that they they have a purpose. God God is always reaching out to us, and and He may do it repeatedly until we learn whatever lesson He's showing us at the time. But He may do it in different ways. Uh, if we have trouble and we don't learn the spiritual lesson that we've learned, we may have trouble in the future because God will not let us pass that point until we learn the spiritual point that he's trying to teach us. The the physical trouble that we have may not be anything like what it had initially been, but the lesson will be the same. He's reaching out to us. Yeah, I I think intellectually, intellectually we all can 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 if we're given distance, we all can identify lessons that we have learned, and mm-hmm. intellectually, okay, I this this was the lesson, and then wait a minute, I did this again, and I did this mm-hmm. again, and I knew this yes. was the lesson. So obviously, I'm not learning the lesson that is meant to be learned. I'm recognizing there's a lesson here, but I'm not figuring out what the deep lesson is, and it's. It's when that's when the spiritual comes into play, and it's 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 a it's a teaching lesson with love um, yep. to 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 in, enhance our own uh, ability to address our reality in a more spiritual, loving way. And you know, because every exactly. every now and every now and then, I, I look at at things that have you know transpired in my life, and it's like, well, darn, I. Repeated that three or four times. <laughs> you would have over thought over after the third time. When the Hebrews had their their physical exodus, they could do that. They could make the decision, we got to get out of here, let's go, we'll cross right here. They could physically make that decision, and they could make that crossing. But God brought them to a point where they, at the, at the spiritual crossing of the Gulf of Aqaba, they couldn't do that on their own. They, uh-huh. they were in a point where they had mountains on their left and on their right. They had uh, the Gulf of Aqaba ahead of them. And at that point, the Egyptians were closing in from behind. They were stuck in a place that they could not get out of. God had them exactly where he wanted them because they had to say, unless God intervenes, we're goners. And and that's that's what he did, and he did it, he did it beautifully. They were able to make the physical exodus by themselves, the spiritual exodus they could not do alone. It had to be God, and he, he supplied it for them 
and did it really neat. Incidentally, I, is it all right if I back up a little bit? Uh, people are always wanting to know when the exodus took place. And you oh, yeah, mentioned sure. those chariot wheels uh, in the uh, floor. This is, this is really interesting because not a lot of people know about this. Because it hasn't been thoroughly researched, it, it's kind of on hold. But there are not just chariot wheels on the bottom of the uh, Gulf floor at the Gulf of Aqaba. There's a lot of chariot wheels there. They're encrusted with uh, growths, you know, uh, that, that come about from having been underwater for a long time. But they're they're recognizable as as wheels, and it's interesting because the way they look may speak in in a way to when the actual crossing took place. The the evolution of chariots took place over time, and they they experimented with different spoke patterns in their chariots. They had four uh, spoke chariots, six spoke chariot wheels, and eight spoke chariot wheels. They were all uh, experimental to see which one would work better. They eventually settled on six. But the timing is interesting because there was probably only a period of about 20 years when they actually were using all three at the same time. It took them a while to, to settle on six, which they did, but in the, the ocean floor at the Gulf of Aqaba, there's some four-spoke wheels and some eight-spoke wheels. That only took place. Uh, at the. We haven't talked about the contest between the early and late-day people, but the, the biblical estimate for the date of the Exodus is 1446 B.C., and archaeology comes up with a date of about 1250 B.C., about 200 years later. The spokes on the bottom of the uh, ocean floor there were only in use maybe for as little as 20 years, and that corresponds roughly to the 1446 date. In other words, the spoke patterns in the floor are substantiating the early date, the biblical date, for the Exodus. That's pretty neat because we don't have a lot of evidence like that, but that's, excuse me, that's that's significant. That it actually well, and the, other, the, the other thing that, that's fascinating is that there are piles of bones. Yes, and, all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. And, and they're, we, not, uh, they're not scattered. They're, they're in piles. They're in piles. That might speak. I'm I'm speculating here, but uh, if the water had overflowed the area, if it had been dry and it overflowed in one direction, that place where the exodus took place, across, uh, opposite Nueva Beach, there, the the floor of the uh, Gulf is a little different than it is in some places. In some parts of that area, it's it's pretty near a mile deep. It at that spot, it's a broad and shallow place. It's still deep for for men, but compared to what it is in other places, it's shallow. And yet those piles are on this shallow ridge that they would have crossed on. If the uh-huh. flow of water had come from one direction, from either direction, it probably would have washed it aside and gone into deeper water where they couldn't find it. The fact that they remain on that shelf, I think, is an indication that the collapse of water came from both directions. 
because it kept it on the on the shelf instead of washing it in one direction or another. And and there's all kinds of stuff there. If people have sus- suspected maybe it was sunken boats, but there are no boats. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and what is there is kind of difficult to identify. They say there's bones. I've heard people speculate that there's human bones in that mix, horse bones and whatever all else. It's a little different difficult to really identify it really well because they're not allowed to remove it for for study. They can take pictures of it and they can look at what can be seen, but until they're allowed to remove some of this stuff, they're not going to have anything real definitive, and and there's growths on all this stuff. They're they're looking at bones that are overgrown with moss and and, uh, all kinds of different things that, that make real good identification difficult. But it's really cool to sit there and say, "Well, there's no ship down there, but there's bones <laughs> and and whatever whatever all else uh, We wonder how the Jews got ready to launch a, a physical assault. You know, maybe there would have been soldiers dead that they could have reached. They might have been able to scavenge weapons from some of these soldiers. It must have been a real mess because a large number of people died, uh, Pharaoh's entire army. And that would have been both the chariots and infantry would have been on that crossing at the same time. So there was a lot of people that would have died because of that. It, it would have been. Well, you, you, make, you, you make a really good point in your book, too, about how how big was the army that came after them? Because if it was Pharaoh's entire army, wouldn't the killing of the firstborn have sort of decimated it? And it would have, if, it would have been difficult for them to chase after the Hebrews very quickly because their command structure would have been really messed up. They, they, important that, people would have been missing at all levels. And well, they not would have only had that. Huh? But, but if, not if, only if that. I'm sorry? Well, we're... Weren't weren't the horses and the herds and everything weren't they all killed in one of the? Um, That's exactly plagues? right. When you you read about the plagues, uh, animals were killed in three different plagues. I forget exactly which number, but after they were over, they still had at least six hundred horses. After the livestock had been wiped out three times by three, it says all the livestock was killed, and yet after three rounds of that, three of those plagues. They still had at least 600 horses. So, Did, first of all, the plagues weren't as devastating to Egypt as they make them sound. But the other side of the coin is the loss of the firstborn would have required them to reorganize the whole army before they could be ready to chase after the Hebrews. That would have taken some time. Not only that, but they probably would have been scattered throughout Egypt. They wouldn't have all been concentrated in the Nile Delta. They would have been all up and down the Nile River. And it would have taken weeks if they had to recall their entire army to chase after them. So they chased after them. That begs a question. Now, in the the movie, I mean, it was almost the plague was day after day after day after day. Is it possible that that the plagues were stretched out over a year or two years? Well, the Bible says they, they were seven days each. And seven is a symbolic number. So uh-huh. uh, it's difficult to say 
if a, a number can be symbolic and still be literal, uh, there's no doubt about that. But it doesn't tell us whether they were literal or symbolic. They they were symbolic. There's no doubt about that. But they may have also been literal, and we don't know. My gut feeling is there was not too much time between each plague. It it talks about a week. That maybe uh-huh. that that might have been. I I have a feeling it was all in one season. Um, if they if they left on what became the first day of their year in the month of Nisan, uh, the events leading up to it probably were within a one growing season. So maybe, you know, if it was seven days apiece and there was ten of them, that would have been 70 days. That's a little over two months. Um, could it have been three or four months, maybe? But I, I doubt that it was a year. I I don't know the answer. I'm speculating as I well, as I talk. Well, if that's you know the case, how large an area did the plague cover? Did the plagues cover? I mean, was it Egypt central? Was it all of the land of Egypt? Was it you know how? In, mm-hmm. in other words, it it wasn't a plague that hit the whole world. It no, it wasn't. When we talk about things like the flies, you know, they could have covered a substantial area. Uh, well, maybe we should go back to the frogs. If the if the <laughs> frogs came up out of the water and died, and then they were in heaps that might have given rise to flies and gnats and some of these other things. So how big an area, how much of the Nile River lost its frogs? <laughs> well, yeah. it doesn't doesn't tell us, but it talks uh, as if they were pushed up in, mountain, in mountains. So there must have been a huge number of them. I suspect, I'm only guessing as I talk to you, that most of this took place in Lower Egypt. When uh, when Egypt had been two nations, Upper and Lower Egypt, Lower uh-huh. Egypt was sort of uh, from Memphis north to, out to the Mediterranean, and Upper Egypt was maybe like from Memphis south, which is a much larger area. I suspect that most of this took place in Lower Egypt because Mo- uh, Moses and Aaron were able to repeatedly uh, walk right up to where Pharaoh was living, and that probably was his summer residence in in Lower mm-hmm. Egypt. Uh, really difficult to nail that down, and and I, I wish we had answers for more of these that are more clear. Little by little, uh, archaeology is making huge contributions uh, on the, on the physical level, and we have to make good interpretations to see what. The spiritual side of the coin was the Lord was doing, and we've maybe not been real good at that, but that's that's where we need to get to. But I think I, I'm speculating, as I say, that that it was not all of Egypt, but what we call Lower Egypt. Now that sounds backwards. Lower Egypt uh, is uh, the northern part of Egypt, and that sounds backwards. <clears throat> the way we look at maps, we would tend to think that. The lower part would be at the south, but the Nile River uh-huh. from south to north, the lower Egypt is on the Mediterranean. Gotcha. Well, I think 
the other thing that <clears throat> that I did want to go into, while we still have time here, is um, the promised land. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, you 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 have fascinating maps in the book that 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 gets you right down to what the Bible says in in several different places, and then the ultimate the ultimate promised land that that you came up with was was just a, about where Israel is now. That, that that's right. Uh, I I went into that because uh, a lot of people have tried to figure out exactly what where the promised land was and, and how big it was. And I think that the same answer applies that we had talked to a little while ago. When the Lord is doing things, he wants to do it in such a way that it's very clear that it was him that was doing it and not man. And using a little tiny nation that was helpless gives him a better opportunity to show his greatness and the weakness of man. When he does tremendous things in in the face of them being impossible in the natural world, it, then we're able to say, okay, God was behind us. God, God did this. Many people have taken the scriptures, the literal scriptures, and, and look at what they say and decide that the promised land was a very large place, including not just what we call Israel today, but include parts of, of Turkey and Syria and Iran and Iraq and Egypt <laughs> and and Jordan. A really large patch of territory. If that had been done, Egypt, uh, excuse me, uh, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel would have become the largest country in, in that part of the world, uh, which probably would have meant that it was the most powerful. So what I did was, I the Bible describes in four different ways what the parameters of the land were. One was by naming the cities that they were to overrun. One mm-hmm. was by uh, uh, giving a physical description of the land. I, I took all of that and I, I tried to put it all together in a way that would make sense to people. So I started with one of the large maps. I started with with four maps that show three really large conjectures as to what the size of the Palestine area had been, and one map that had two pictures, which comes much more closer to what we have today and to the traditional thinking that uh, what the size of the Promised Land had been. They're miles apart in their size, and yet both of them were taken from what the uh, adherents believed to be a literal understanding of of the text of the Bible. They're so far apart, they can't both be right. (laughs) So I thought I would try to work through that, and I I took what the Bible describes uh, as being limits and and gradually eliminated things. For uh, example... uh, in a, a trapezoid, which people commonly draw, there is a not quite east-west line. It runs from the northwest to the southeast a little bit, uh, making the lower level of a trapezoid 
and Moses was supposed to have gotten all the land that he walked, but he never walked that line. Uh, it's simply not a part of what he did, and that would eliminate a big part of that trapezoidal piece of ground and part of the central desert as well. And I, I think I did that nine, nine or ten times, gradually whittling things down from the larger thinking of the land uh, down to what the last description uh, in the Bible is. And it comes pretty close to the size of Israel today. The exterior dimensions are very close. Uh, Israel has been willing to share the Golan Heights uh, and uh, I've forgotten the other area uh, with their Palestinian neighbors, but for the most part, uh, it's it's very it's very tight. The other thing that you might think of to depict that it was a smaller place is is thinking back to the nation of Egypt. If Egypt had been destroyed the way it had been, and their army was completely destroyed, people sometimes think Pharaoh was killed. I don't think he was. Uh, there was no army left. The population was sorely depleted, and and the ground was ruined. Egypt would have been helpless. And if the Hebrews had said, let's forget this Exodus thing, let's go back to Egypt and take over, Egypt, if it had been in the shambles that we often think it would be in, they could have easily done that. They could have marched back to Egypt, taken over. They would have had a well-established country, a big area, a wealthy country. But it didn't happen that way. There was no, It's never even been suggested that anything like that happened, and it, and it didn't. God wanted to take a weak, fledgling people and bring them to a place of his choosing and and bring them into it in spite of the difficulties. It's uh, We call it the promised land. And, yeah, the area has been contested for centuries, all, all, the, way, all the way back in history. There have always been people wanting to control it. They had the Hittites to the north, the Assyrians or Babylonians or whoever it was at the time to the east, and the Egyptians to the south. All three were contending against each other, and there was many smaller nations existing within the Palestine area, and everybody wanted a piece of the pie. And God brings the Hebrews into it and says, this is the promised land, this is the land that I've given you. (laughs) And you have to wonder, my goodness, why did he bring them into the most contested part of the entire world? Why didn't he take them to a place that nobody else wanted you know, I mean, yeah, the Mormons, like Hawaii. they went out west and they, they settled in a place that nobody else wanted. God put them right in the center of what was taking place in the entire world. His purpose in that was not so much to protect the Hebrews from trouble, but to win these other countries and bring them into covenant with himself. God, God's plan has always been to win the lost, and that's one way that it's being described what their responsibility was, what the Hebrews' responsibility was, to stand up and be counted and and tell about the living God. To some extent, they well, did it. In a way, though, the Exodus is the story of the taking of a nation, the Hebrews, and evolving them into a religion, which was the Jews. 
So they started mm-hmm. out Hebrews, they ended up Jews. Mm-hmm. And we end up as Christians today. We we are the followers of that. I mean, uh, uh-huh. every generation, we have different languages and we have different cultures, but God has had one plan from the beginning, beginning with the patriarchs and then with the ancient Hebrews and then the Jews and finally us. It's all one story. He's always trying to reach men and not just us that are within uh, those four groups, but uh, people all over the world he's trying to reveal himself to. The Bible itself is really a Hebrew book. It's a Jewish book. Uh, uh-huh. The people that wrote it were Jews. Uh, the people that experienced it were Jews. And Jesus was a Jew. And yeah. it's telling their story from their perspective. But what God is doing in the lives of men is universal. He, God is interested in all people. And he reveals himself to them in the light of their own language and culture. It might not be the same way for other people that it is for me, but he's just as interested uh, in them. Some of my Christian friends might have trouble with this because a lot of us seem to have think we have an exclusive right to God or something like that, and I don't think we do. I think he's always no. been interested in all people, and he manifests himself so that it can be understood by whoever he's reaching. If God wants to talk to me, Verbally, he's got to do it in English. If he he can't talk to me in French or Russian or something like that because I wouldn't know what he was saying. The same thing applies to the culture. If what he wants to do in my life is going to be understood by me, it has to be something that I can relate to within the framework of the culture that I live in. Uh, and and he does that unbelievably well. <laughs> he he speaks to each person so that they can understand him in the light of their own existence. It's really cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that the way that you have gone, both in Exodus and in Genesis, you have a section after each area that you've approached. You, you, ha- you're re- you relate it to our own lifetime now as to what we're going through now so that so that people are able to see the the um the relevance to right. today's life as much as it was relevant in that time frame so that so that you know you've 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 created a bridge from the the literal ex, you know the the literal expression of people 2 3000 years ago and mm-hmm. you've created a bridge so that it can be applied the philosophy and the understanding. I, to do that. And I, I call those yeah. things teaching moments. I, I don't know how many. There's more than 30 of them in the Exodus book. And each yeah. time what I've done is taken whatever story was being talked about at the time and try to show it, show how it applies to our lives today. It always does. And uh, when we tend to look at the historical aspects, that's interesting and it's it's important. But if we stop before we understand what was taking place spiritually, we, we've we missed the most important part. And so I have tried to come back to that each time and, and where I could understand it. I've, I've tried to show people what God was teaching us at the spiritual level when he uses whatever had taken place historically uh, that we could see. Well, I think it's it's 
another way of viewing the Bible that most people don't don't really pay attention to it and you've you've really used you know the hyperbola the uh, apocalyptic mm-hmm. language the allegory and the metaphors you you've pointed them out where in in many cases people haven't recognized that's what was being utilized and we're, and we're so, not always uh, using those things um we 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 use non-literal language ourselves i've written some bible studies and uh, throughout a couple of them, I have interspersed idioms, many of them, just in the course of developing the text of the teaching. They're always uh-huh. non-literal. You know, it ain't over till the fat lady sings or uh, at the end of the road or something. Expressions that we use all the time are non-literal expressions. The, the gospel writers did that too, but they didn't use the same ones that we use and in addition to idioms, they use hyperbole, apocalyptic language, allegories, and metaphors. We may know what those are, but we're not used to using them to the extent that they did at that time. And it's it's easy for us to stay focused on what's happening historically and actually miss the teaching that, that God really has for us. So I've, I've tried to keep that from happening. <laughs> Well, I think it's important that that people are able to go to a greater depth of understanding of what's mm-hmm. in the Bible rather than absolutely. just the literal. And, you know, there's so many people that just take it absolutely literally. And, mm-hmm. well, that, that's fine and appropriate. It's, it's, like, it's like a layer cake. You know, you have your bottom layer, but there are many layers on top of it. You, there, are, there are the allegories. There are the metaphors. Exactly. There, there are, and and the the element of of the um of going into the covenants too i i mm-hmm. think it's something that that the the more the, the greater the depth you can you can put into an understanding the the more the the greater the application it is to your own spiritual development and understanding of life and how you should be living it Exactly. If I could try to get people to focus on one of those, I would say if you can learn about covenant, you'll have a a much better, excuse me, a much better grasp of what's taking place in the Bible. These other literary devices are are also important, but covenant is is really major and if we can get a better handle on that, we'll have a better handle on the whole Bible. It's, it's well, you know, cool. it, you even take it into um, best example, or, or even the Ten Commandments. Um, I, I spoke with people at one time, you know, saying, you know, how many of you have, you know, not broken any of them or broken some of them, and how many of you have broken the thou shalt not kill? And, you know, no hands went up, and, and then I said, you know, have you ever killed someone's dreams? Have you ever killed someone's ideas? Have you ever? And then, mm-hmm. then suddenly hands are going up all over the place. That, that you mm-hmm. know, physical death is is important certainly, but but you know, killing a dream from someone or, or killing an idea or putting a stop to someone's ambition, that's murder too. And and God has so, always teach us at both levels. That, the physical and the spiritual, because he, he, both the physical and the spiritual are important. 
Actually, Jesus was asked which is the greatest commandment. He didn't pick one of the Ten Commandments, but he said, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart and soul. And then he continued, and he said, and the second is like unto it, and that was you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's not in the Ten Commandments. That was in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, I think. But if you look at the Ten Commandments, they're actually divided into two parts. The first four are really about man's relationship with God, and the last six are about man's relationship with each other. How do we deal with our fellow men? What are the things that we have to learn? And and so when God gave them the law, he was giving him, them a sampling of what was to follow, because there was actually maybe like 600 commandments, far more than they would ever be able to. 613. Huh? 613. Is that, is that right? Six hundred and thirteen. Yeah. They probably couldn't remember yeah. them all. Let's live by them all. Um, no. But they needed to know that they couldn't live by the standard God had for them, and that they had to depend on grace. And He made it yeah. available from the very beginning. <laughs> and almost, almost saying, "Look, you're going to screw up, but you know there is forgiveness. There is." That's exactly is, right. You know, and uh, yeah. it's impossible to walk walk that line totally unless of course you're a saint or something and even the saints messed up too so um well I, I saints just, were average people but they maybe they progress farther than i have takes a lifetime you know we can become christians in a moment of time but it really takes us an entire life uh, a life of experiences to to learn really what god has for us and how we're to handle ourselves and, well, I think we're down here. We're down here for that. We're down here to learn those lessons. That's why we. That's why we're here. I just noticed our time, though. Um, I we're, we, we're, we're running down out, here aren't the we? last couple of minutes. We've run out. Um, okay. <laughs> I want. I want to thank you so very, very much. Um, this has been such a pleasure. I'm glad we finally got this in. And, yeah, right. um You want. You want to give people where they can get a hold of you. Sure. Uh, I can be reached on Facebook. I'm under there as Mike Colicuri or F. Michael Colicuri author. Uh, I can be reached by uh, email. Email address is jamcolac, J-A-M-C-O-L-A-C, at msn.com, and I'd be glad to respond to you. If you want to get either of my books, they're available at at, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes, or I've got some here. Uh, and uh, I can send one out to you if you want to get it from me. I've got other things in the works that uh, will eventually be coming. I found a cartoonist. I've got four Bible studies that were really taken out of the Restarting Genesis book, Um, and they're on hold. They're completely written. I have been looking for a year and a half for a cartoonist. I've got like 70 cartoons to put in there. The other day I found a cartoonist, so maybe that project is going forward now. I've got other things that will be coming down the line uh, in due course. We'll keep you posted as best we can. We will look forward to that. I want to thank you so much. And, um, you know, as new projects come up, you know, let us know because I'd love to have you back on again. Oh, that would be super. That would be absolutely great. I will keep you posted. (laughs) Okay, Doug. Uh, Thanks again, everybody, for listening, and uh, check out 
uh, the calendar for tomorrow. Mark has a great show. And, of course, there's another one next Monday. So keep, keep in touch, and we'll keep you posted. Stay well, everybody. Good night. <laughs>